to get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, a British journalist interviews a mercenary who travels the world to rescue children, capture fugitives, and avenge the innocent. But are his testosterone-fueled tales true? We'll discuss the podcast, American Vigilante. Plus... (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert. Plus, a different kind of detective story. Three cousins head to Asia in search of the parents who gave them up for adoption as part of China's one-child policy. We'll review the Netflix documentary, Found. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Still have a bit of a cold. But, you sound uh, way better. I sa- Yes, I sound and feel way better. You Thank sounded you. like garbage on the Undisclosed Addendum. Uh, You're still very good, though. I just listened to it. It was super good. Sound like garbage. Thanks. But you sounded great. Uh, also with us is private investigator, a certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of the New Hampshire Magazine featured book, Dead on Deadline, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. Yeah, that was super exciting. I was at the grocery store at New Hampshire Magazine, November issue. It was on the, you know, Christmas books to get this year. So I'll tell you, New Hampshire Magazine, and that's not like a big deal to people who don't live in New Hampshire, but here in New Hampshire, it is a very big deal. That magazine will be in dentist's office for like four years to come. Mm. It's oh, yeah. Re- mm-hmm. yeah, it's really good. I mean, once you get a New Hampshire Magazine, like it's permanent. It's permanent. You know what this means? I can get more cats. and finally our captain of woke cynicism the author of the noir novels known as the city trilogy host of the strange arrivals podcast and our own patreon deep dive book club podcast toby ball hello toby hello rebecca all right well we have a lot to get to tonight including a whole bunch of bullshit so i think we should just get started what do you guys think why delay the bullshit right why delay it let's get right into it Leading off. I can't tell you how I found him, and to be honest, I don't even know his real name or what state he lives in. I also don't know, yet, what I really think about him. Whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, whether he scares me. Journalist Sam Walker meets a person who has a particular set of skills. Going by the pseudonym KC, the man tells Sam a series of tales about his life as a kind of mercenary. Their stories filled with guns, fights, and daring do as KC and his men rescue kidnapped children, find fugitives, and foil criminal enterprises. So the first guy was pretty much unconscious and occupying the doorway from his face, getting hamburgered on the doorframe. Uh, The second guy was already coming up, and I grabbed his wrist, and I just yanked him as hard as I could over the body of the first guy, and his head crashed into the wall in the hallway there, and I did stomp his head pretty damn hard. KC is well-spoken, sort of, and his stories are full of detail and a high drama, and he sometimes admits to withholding details to protect his identity and those he's helped. But this raconteur is so much larger than life, Sam is unsure whether the stories he's telling her are true. What are you going to tell me when I show up and tell you I can get your daughter back? You want me to to make sure I don't hurt anybody? 
What are you going to tell me, Sam? About got tears in your eyes right now just thinking about that shit, don't you? Well, it's ugly. Each episode of the podcast, American Vigilante from Crowd Media, presents KC telling another story about the dangerous side of the world and dark things he must do to set things right. Rather than vet the veracity of his stories, the podcast leaves it to the listener to decide whether KC is the real deal or not. Look at Toby's face right now. (laughs) Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from American Vigilante. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to get our thumbs down or thumbs down review. (laughs) So, Kevin, here's my question for you. (laughs) Yeah. So we were discussing this and we were eating dinner before recording the podcast. And you were saying to me, because I was just like saying, you know, what I was going to say about the podcast. And you were like, well, we need to be careful and talk about it in our responsible crime writers on way and like that this is our opinion and not fact, whether or not this is true or not. And I asked you the question, when a person goes on a podcast that doesn't even use their real name, do we need to be careful when we say that what this person says is totally bullshit? Do we have to say it's our opinion that this is totally bullshit? Well, this is a side effect of what the issue is with the podcast, okay? which is we don't know if what he is saying is true or not. Now, it could be true, but we do not know because it has it has not been verified or in any way has the audience really been convinced that it is. Now- I am leaning, I think we're all leaning to this being a bunch of bullshit or a little bit of truth and and a a whole bunch of bullshit. But the problem is, look, because it's a story, like if you were able to prove the story and at the end she says, yep, I have this document here and it's all true, we're kind of in a bad situation if we say that he's lying. We can say we think that. This is the equivalent of using the term allegedly when someone, you know, is is charged with a crime. The problem is we don't really know. Mm. Whether or not we talk about it in a in a way that we're giving him the benefit of the doubt or not, it is the problem with this podcast. It sounds so fanciful, but is presented in a way that is unchallenged and it just half the time you're wondering whether it's real or not. That is a distraction for the podcaster. We could talk about how to solve that, but well, I don't know. But that's the frame, Laura. Like she says, I'm leaving it up to you to decide if it's true or not. I, when the first 30 seconds was like, this is fucking not true. It's bullshit. It's total. Sorry. It is my opinion that this is total bullshit. Oh, Laura, you can't defame someone who's not using their real name. I'm sorry. You can't. When when the stunts and the special effects are like better than a Marvel movie. I mean, he has like a super vehicle that like you don't even, you can drive it for like around the world three times and coast to coast yeah it drives itself and it talks to you like night rider and whatever i mean come on the war now. machine war machine <laughs> war wagon war wagon things designed for long distance and for comfort and it's made to carry and have everything that i might even possibly need it's got an incredible fuel capacity uh, it is turbo diesel modified it can cruise at 80 miles an hour and get almost 30 miles the gallon, and it weighs 8,000 pounds. I'm thinking about getting in a vanity plate. I'm just being honest with you right now. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> on your station wagon? That would be great on my Prius. <laughs> I mean, I legit have a station wagon. It would be a very obscure reference, but I think people might enjoy it who do get it. Go ahead, Laura. Oh, I was going to say, you know, that aside, could we not have had like a 10-second disclaimer at the start of the episodes? We're going to just let this guy talk a lot without anybody else. And we have verified this information. Enjoy the show. Right. But 
we don't even know who she is. Right. Like, who is she that has the credentials t- to be telling this story? She's got another podcast, right? She's yeah. got some podcasts about moving to Texas or something. Yeah. In the desert, yeah. Yeah, she's like probably a documentarian or reporter or whatever. I mean, I, that's what I glean from context clues, right? Because we hear she's a camera and she's obviously a good storyteller, probably has a journalism background. But Toby, this is the kind of storyteller. I mean, first of all, I have listened to so many shitty Orphan X books on audio narrated by Scott Brick because I'm a glutton for bad book punishment. And I just love like the way that I fill my boring time when I'm walking six miles listening to shitty action books like that is my that's my guilty pleasure. I was literally listening to this guy just basically read stories from Orphan X uh, assassin vigilante books. Like walking up the stairs, a guy pulls another guy and uses him as a human shield while I shoot. And, you know, Papa. Uh, I saw can't that you- in Squid Game. Papa, don't go. Papa, don't go. She looked at me and dried her tears up immediately. And she goes, You go, Papa. She goes, You go get that little girl and you bring her back. And then we'll have our barbecue. The lies are on their face. Like every every detail is on its face, an indication that it's bullshit. You think so, too. Please tell me you think so, too, Toby. Yeah, it's it's just bad fiction, you know, and it, and it starts at the beginning where he goes like, I don't know what his background is that makes his dad's friend or whoever it is who says, I, you know, there's got some missing kids. I need you to go to find them and then he like somehow finds out they're in some trailers or something but he goes into a trailer and he like goes in and it's like there's money and drugs lying all over the place (laughs) and a naked couple on the couch and they're passed out it's like what come on this is like a ridiculous book and then he walks down the hall and you know the kids are in a room there's two guys with guns and he takes out the first guy and then the second guy's like oh what's going on and he takes out that guy and then he takes the kids out and then the third kid is in another trailer it's like well you know i took those guys out it's like come on it's just like these complete fucking stupid stereotypes and it just happens again and again and again, like some people get kidnapped in Mexico and he goes down there and his like investigative strategy is we're going to go to some bars and discotheques and see who's talking about stuff Yep. and sits down next to some Americans who are like, oh, our friends got kidnapped. It's like, all right, Whoa. if your friends got kidnapped in Mexico, you're not going to go out drinking right. publicly. Right. You're going to be f- fucking hiding. Yeah. All right, so like he finds those people in Mexico, the kidnapped, quote, executives. The woman executive is still wearing her business suit, but her skirt is ripped only at the hem. I'm sorry, this guy fucking watched Patriot Games and like just like. And she's still wearing the one shoe. She lost one shoe, but she's keeping that one shoe on. But here's the thing that occurred to me. All of these fantasies, they're just they're just toxic masculinity fantasies, right? So like it's like dad beat me, but I still love him. Uh, it's all women and children getting raped and me rescuing them. It's all violence against women and children and only I can save them. It's law and order must abide unless I decide it mustn't abide and I will beat people. Uh, cops are allowed to beat people up when I say they're allowed to beat people up. And then what bothers me, Laura, is that Sam, mm-hmm. in her telling of this, and it's one thing for her to sort of say, just let him talk and you can decide. But she also presents him in a very, like, guileless way as, like, being somehow honorable 
what mm-hmm. he's saying is so many times she doesn't check his homophobia. She doesn't check Mm-mm. his racism. She doesn't check any of the super toxic bullshit things he says. She sort of talks about him as somebody with sort of like an honorable code also. Isn't that like kind of gross? Yes. And I felt like, I mean, that was another thing that frustrated me about this. You know, so we're not really questioning him. We're kind of like encouraging him and the way that she talks to him. I mean, it just it felt like they were like just having like this fun conversation and she's teasing him a little bit, but in a way that's not really calling him out on his bullshit. So at one point I'm like, oh, okay, sit back, Laura. Don't get so mad as I'm like pacing around town. Maybe this is like a setup. And then they're going to be like, surprise, we let this guy go on and on and like spew all this bullshit because we're going to be like, guess what? We're exposing him as like a delusional narcissist, like just womanize. You know, he wasn't. Oh, I'm sorry. He didn't drink. He didn't womanize. But, you know, they're going to expose him at the end. Maybe that's why they're letting him go on. And I'm like, no, I don't think that's what's happening. So I think that was the frustrating part is like he's like emboldened in terms of getting puffed up by just the way that she's questioning him and the tone that she's questioning him in. And that just makes him go on even worse. because Now he's got a captive audience, you know, all of the possible solutions that you've set out are problematic because if at the end they decide they learn that he's full of shit, then they've just presented 10 hours worth of bullshit that they didn't check or that they knew was bullshit. That's the other problem. Yeah. Right. And we hear little bits throughout like, "Mm, well, I don't know if this is true. And then nothing else. The veracity of his story is now the story, right? And so even if we just got a little bit of her trying to fact check, say, well, I call, you know, listen to her like trying to call Murph. And even if he doesn't answer or whatever, show some of the work. And maybe that means that you're, okay, you're leading to something. You're going to start turning cards over. Right now, it just sounds like we're going, okay, here's the microphone. Kevin. We'll add the nice music. You tell us the story. I have a question. Yeah. Can you or can you not Google missing child recovered at amusement park? Can you or can you not Google guy who beat up two (laughs) cops was the son of two state troopers? Like these are Googleable stories. Can Uh, you Google truck that can cross country without getting filled up for gas? There are many, many things that are Googleable, but there are also her name is Amanda. But there are also details like contradictory details that remain unchecked. So she says in the podcast, I ask him questions about the same story days later and he repeats the same details. So therefore it adds credibility to it. When I, as a listener, hear him say he is allergic to every variety of milk and then five fucking minutes later hear him say he has animals at his house that he milks and drinks the milk and eats the cheese and makes his own fucking yogurt and ice cream and shit. And I'm like, well, is he allergic to milk or isn't he allergic to milk? Like, as a listener, I hear contradictory, unchecked details. And I hear the host of this podcast telling me, you know, I, I, it's hard to believe this stuff, but then his memory is so amazing. How could he possibly be making it up? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe he just remembers that movie he saw in 2015. What do you think, Toby? Well, my honest feeling is that this is just all this is all a big thing to sell the IP to some <laughs> cable station for a show that'll, you know, be some action show with this guy, you know, waterboarding people with Dr. Pepper. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just it just plays out like a really, really stupid action adventure show. Yeah. It, it's, it's nonsensical. 
with dumb 80s tropes. White slavery? Who the fuck says yeah, that in 2021? Slavery. Yeah. I mean, Who that's, says that? I think that's what they call conjuring words. Yes. Like it's, it doesn't mean anything, but it's supposed to evoke a certain emotion. Yes. You know, it's just hard to know. Like everything is so on the face of it. It's not just implausible. It's just, it seems it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Like all his investigative techniques or what, you know, passes for them are like, a guy who can like hack into every store's security cameras and within a couple of hours figure out what store some woman goes to at the same time every day. And there's a guy who's like scoping out her kid. Maybe it's him. And we'll go and like find him and we'll waterboard some guy who happens into his house. It's just mind bending. Like I just I can't believe how bad it is. It's an Mm. orphan X book. I liked when he was going to be the writer and he was in the cabin and he was like (laughs) oh for gone for months. So apparently we had just heard Laura twenty minutes before that that he has children who miss him when he leaves the family barbecue. But somehow he's able to buy a brand new truck, cross international lines, be gone for weeks if not months with no cell phone. And nobody misses him. And it's no big deal. Yeah, exactly. Can't he just take Sam for a ride in the war wagon and be like, oh, okay, there's some truth to this. Yeah, this is my war wagon. You see it. I want to see the war wagon. But I have to say, I mean, there's so many ridiculous details in this that I'm just like, this guy's full of shit. But the, um, like, I don't write down phone numbers and I don't program down phone numbers. And I remember everybody's phone number from 20 years ago. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? He doesn't. Like, he doesn't. No, I'm like that. Toby, are you like that? <laughs> no. So, Kevin, there is one. I do have one theory. Yeah. So, so I have because we live in a tiny town. With I will say, Laura, you live in a small. You guys both live in small towns, and there is a thing about small towns that do actually. I hate to say it, kind of like breed guys like this who like to sit in bars and tell bullshit stories. Like I know actually not people to this extent, but we know people like this, right? Sure. With crazy nicknames who tell bullshit stories when they sit at bars. There is a pattern that I have discerned that when someone like won't talk about a thing or they like exaggerate a thing, it's not because that thing is bad. It's actually because the truth is really boring. Uh-huh. Um, so this guy, I, well, I will say he does know a lot of things. That's, yeah. That was he knows say a that. lot about weapons. He knows a lot about, you know, he has a lot of factual knowledge that, yeah, could come from reading lots of novels. It could come from military experience, it could come from whatever. But that whole thing where he's like, I'm not going to talk about my time in the military, Sam, right? My theory is not that he had some sort of storied Navy SEAL career and that he was like, dishonorably discharged or shit my theory is that he was like a fucking cook or something like really he was the quartermaster (laughs) yeah it was something like he went through training he learned a lot about the weapons but then he was like just boring you know what i mean Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah that's that's one theory (laughs) or like bo bergdahl or something who never should have been allowed in the military but actually got flagged instead of getting you know into the situation bergdahl did yeah well he, he sounds like a fabulist doesn't he I mean, you can read, like, there's a book that was called, I think it was called Ghost Man that came out a bunch mm-hmm. of years ago. And it was this, you know, it was a novel. And I don't know how much of it was true, but it certainly seemed more realistic than this. But it's about a guy who basically does what this guy does, but kind of nonviolently. But it has a lot of, like, details about how do you, like, have no traces of your identity? How do you do all these kind of really complicated things? And it came off as being super realistic. And it's like, does this guy who wrote this really know how to do it? Did he Google this stuff? Is he making it up? Like, it's hard to tell. What's different is in this case, 
Like, there's a few things where it's like, oh, like, you must have Googled, like, how this weapon works or whatever. But the whole rest of it is just so fucking absurd that even the details it gets right, it's like, oh, okay, well, you must have, like, done a little research on that or maybe you know that. But it almost points out just how bad the rest of it is. But couldn't the truth be, like small and boring like couldn't he just be ex-military and have like a little security job and like so Mm -hmm. like there's a truth where like he does own he owns he drives like a ford pickup truck and has a private security job and has turned it into this like he's obviously a big guy with giant hands and big hair and looks intimidating guy in moona right so like couldn't it be true (laughs) that he is a big intimidating guy who's like a security guard or whatever and he is turned it into this like i think it's probably something like that yeah i don't think it's nothing i mean he knows certain things he's seen some stuff he's involved in some kind of security yeah whatever i think it's boring i I I think it's boring as fuck it could very well be (laughs) look sam opens episode nine with probably the most honest assessment of the audience that she's given a lot of you love Casey. You believe every word he says. To you, he's the greatest guy of all. Some of you think he's making the whole thing up, that he's watched too many action films, and I'm the worst journalist in the world for even listening to him. And then some of you don't care if it's made up. You just love the podcast, and you could listen to Casey all day. So if you are just going along for the ride, like, that's fine. As a listener, I probably could just go along for the ride. I might not care whether or not it's true if it's a really good story. But the journalist, host, producers, they have to care whether or not he's telling the truth. Right? Yeah. Right? I well, mean, they have to care on our behalf. They have to care on our behalf. Even if they don't actually care in real life, they should pretend they care on our behalf. A, a listener can go, okay, yeah, fine, I'll go along for the ride. You can't make a podcast and just say, man, nah, we'll just go along for the ride. That's what's problematic about it. Some of the stories I do find kind of entertaining. Again, they may be bullshit. But, Maybe. You know, you know, as far as an action story, okay. This was always my measure of the truthfulness of somebody who was like, if your grandfather said that uh, he stormed the beach in Normandy on D-Day and he killed seven Germans, then, you know, he's kind of propping himself up. He might not really be on the level. If he says, I stormed the beach in Normandy, I was scared shitless, I was lucky to get... If he doesn't make himself out to be a hero, I'm more likely to believe what he has to say. This guy is a superhero in every case. And just the fact that he could once... One time at all, find that one trailer that happens to have the kidnapped kids that haven't been murdered. That'd be the one story in your whole life. Right, right. But he's got two every hour. So it's like, (laughs) you know. You know know what the best is? I'm sorry. I know we have to wrap it. But the very best. No, we could keep going on this forever. So the best is. So there's a couple things that are the best. Mm -hmm. My favorite thing, and this is how you know he's fucking full of bullshit, is, well, besides a little girl. Hey, Papa. Whatever. Is, um... The whole thing the where no, no, oh. two things. One I'm is not a Native American. Oh well, there's that. That's fucking racist. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not getting any of those privileges like those Native Americans. <laughs> so <have>. bullshit. <laughs> so racist. So then there's this whole thing where he's like, um, so and then that man never touched drugs again, and he's living a pure and clean life after I threatened him. So basically, Ooh. like after I interacted with him, he never committed a crime ever again. So there was that. And then there was the second one, which I fucking loved with the kidnapped kid rescued from the amusement park where it's like, 
I have a rule that if I help you at some point in the future, you might have to do a favor for me. I might need to borrow your car. I might need to use your house as a safe house. I might need to use your phone numbers. I'm like, that is, you are fucking stealing that from the goddamn Orphan X novels, which is literally like, I may have to use your house as a safe house. What's he going to do with the kid? I liked the car thing. And then he said, but we're not going to use the car in the operation. It's just a get place. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because then I way- have the war wagon. But I don't want to drive it around or something. But it's got comfortable seats. <laughs> Fucking 15 minutes later, we hear for an operation in Canada, he's able just to buy a new car if he needs one. And Sam does not ask him any questions about that contradiction. He says he speaks Spanish. Why don't you just throw a couple of words Why don't you just ask him, can you speak Spanish for us, <laughs> sir? Let us hear it. No problemo. Uh, no es posible. The the very beginning of it, I don't even know if you have a story from him yet, when Sam's like, one thing I've noticed about America is that when you're here long enough, like somebody will come up to you and say, you know, if you got a problem, if there's something, I've got a guy who can fix it for you. You know, no, we had this horrible that has landlord. Never happened and, to me. You know, somebody would drive him out to the desert. And I was like, <laughs> except for Laura Bricker, I can't imagine any of my friends yeah. having that conversation with anybody. <laughs> like, I. That does not happen to you in America. No. It just doesn't. We we wrote one book where that happened, but that was very rare. Jesus H. Was Christ. that the Windhurst one? Yes. Yeah. But that was yeah. an extremely rare situation. But that was different because there was like a legitimate reason that, yes. you know. Yes. But like, you no. having trouble with your snowplow guy? Yeah. I've got a guy who'll talk to him. <laughs> yeah. And he's got Break a cool his name. Kneecaps. His name is Raw Dog. He can go hunt you down for a month. Someone's got to milk his fucking cow, though, but. Oh, God. In the uh, after show, can we just posit what our American Vigilante nicknames would be, please? Okay, sure. Okay, we're going to talk about the after show. Yeah. All right, good. Well, look, the crazy thing is that in the end, again, this entire thing could be true. Could it? It, it could. All of a sudden, yeah. Oh, my God, if Casey could, shows up no, no, at our house? What? Sam might be there just sitting back, smiling, laughing, like, wait till I bring you the proof. I'll eat my hat. I'll eat this fucking hat that I'm wearing right just, now. Dude, my, my UFO podcasts are way more plausible. Than yeah, all right. <laughs> If Casey comes to New Hampshire to hunt us down in the war wagon, you can come to my house. I have a bunker and we nice. can hide. Mm. Casey, Casey, if you come to my house in the war wagon <laughs> and show me proof that everything that this podcast is actually true, I will. I don't know. Yeah. What will I do? Where the fuck are you getting jet fuel for your car? <laughs> yeah. he, he called in some favors, Kevin. There are doctors on his team. Doctors and lawyers. Does he go to the airport and then like drive on the tarmac and say, break he it? Goes, I know. They, you know what? They sounded like the A-team or something. Like during yeah. the day, they go to work and nobody would know yeah. that they were part. And the woman, we don't talk about her. I did ask Wyrick about this, by the way. As you saw, I may have tweet. I tweeted, I'd love for James yeah. Wyrick to assess this. And he did write back. Oh, and he's like, Wyrick. this guy's literally reciting plots from the A-team on this podcast. I think <laughs> Wyrick should interrogate him. I, I agree, Rebecca. 100%. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out American Vigilante or should they not check out American Vigilante? It's a podcast from Crowd Media. Is that right, Kevin? Crowd yeah. Media? All right, Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for American Vigilante? I'm going thumbs down. However, I think for like entertainment value, you should listen to like one episode just so you can understand sort of this like hilarity that ensued tonight of us actually having to talk about this ridiculous thing. Because my other theory with this podcast, because it was so fantastical, I was like, you know what, we're going to get to the end and they're going to be like, surprise, Casey was actually an actor and we were trying out a character for a new TV show to see what people thought of him. No, 100%. 
But no, it's just, this was just so ridiculous that like I was walking around town listening to this and I had to like keep reminding myself not to go, oh, what the fuck? Oh, are you fucking like all as I'm walking and I'm like, oh God, there's like little kids walking to school and I'm just like swearing at these obscure, absurd claims that this guy is making. So I don't know, thumbs down, but listen to an episode and it's entertaining, you know? Toby Ball. You know? He says with his hands (laughs) on his face, he says, okay, listeners, we are on video with each other. So let me just describe Toby's <laughs> affect right now. He just leaned back in his chair with both hands on his face, a thing I have never seen him do before. Toby, go ahead. I mean, the, the host is probably a nice woman. Mm. Um, I spent some time on my drive home today trying to think of what my second least favorite podcast that we've ever done is now, <laughs> because this is just such unadulterated bullshit. And it if it was just that, it'd be one thing. But it's so offensive. It was really genuinely hard to listen to because even though you could be like, well, you know, there's there's some like kind of guilty pleasure in listening to this guy Schumacher or whatever. It comes wrapped in this philosophy that's just absolutely so fucking toxic and ridiculous that it kills any kind of campy pleasure you might be able to get from these idiotic stories. I mean, I don't know, like, if you're going to construct something that was made to, like, turn me off as a listener, like, this is pretty close to it. I'm amazed. And I'll also be amazed if, like, Antonio Sabato Jr., or whatever that guy's name is, isn't, like, starring <laughs> in the, you know. Dean Kane, The Rock. <laughs> no, The Rock is rad. Fuck you, Laura. The Rock is rad. No, I like The Rock. I the like Rock is The Rock. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, rocky. I think I think you might be right. Dean Kane will make his big comeback as KC. Spike TV. I'm kicking ass and taking names. I'm all out of names or something. <laughs> all right, anyway, it's horrible. Face down in a bowl of Cheerios with a banana in his ass. Oh, too, my God. That's so homophobic. <laughs> it's so uh, fucking homophobic. That was so horrible. It, thumbs up. <laughs> thumbs thumbs down. No, Forget. To quote Polly D from uh, Jersey Shore. Cool story, bro. Tell it again. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got to go down on, uh, I got to go thumbs down on Catfish Rambo. Um, <laughs> look, I think the only thing this really needs, the reporter has to come out and say whether this is all bullshit or whether this is all true, because we can't tell is not an acceptable answer. It's funny. We're laughing at it. But in the end, it's very irresponsible if we don't address that and then explain why you just gave the microphone 10 hours of letting some guy tell far-fetched, well, maybe they're far-fetched, but I'm assuming pretty far-fetched tales. Thumbs down. Yeah, huge thumbs down for me. And I'm going to underscore what Toby said, even in the impossible circumstance that even one percent of what this guy says is true, which it is not. One percent, in my opinion, not true. Even if it were a hundred percent true, what he says, if it were true, is so fucking of copaganda offensive that we should not be giving it oxygen. The fact that it is not true and we're still giving it oxygen without challenging it, the things she is challenging, the you're a vigilante. 
Uh, isn't vigil- isn't vigilanteism wrong? She's challenging him on the wrong fucking things. Like it's offensive what she's challenging him on and not challenging him on. Quite frankly, um, I'm sure Sam is a wonderful person, and I'm sure she, like, the idea here is, oh, I met this fun American, like guy at a bar telling stories. Let's just put him on a microphone and like see what happens. Like, I get the premise of sort of like the English sensibility of making fun of weird Americans. Like, I kind of think that may be what this is trying to be. But this particular American is the very worst of what perhaps our culture has to offer and uh, also a huge fucking liar to boot. So huge thumbs down for me for American Vigilante. And I agree with Laura that maybe listen to one episode just so that we can all talk about how fucking horrible it is. Not because I want them to get the downloads, but because, you know, a shared experience of awfulness Sometimes it's something that we need. So huge thumbs down for me for American Vigilante. All right, Kevin, here we are in the business section. Business section. Besides talking about our American Vigilante nicknames, which I want you all to be brainstorming right now, what are we doing in the after show in our Patreon feed right now, Kevin? Also on the after show, we're going to be talking about this season of Undisclosed. Yes. We're going to be talking about why I am recused from this season. This season is about a potential wrongful conviction case in New Hampshire. A potential wrongful conviction. I I haven't heard the whole thing, Rebecca. I haven't made up my mind. That's right. That's right. And so we're talking about this New Hampshire case. We're talking about your experience hosting the Undisclosed Addendum. Yeah. And we're also talking about our American vigilante nickname. So I hope you guys are thinking about those right now. Yeah, Catfish Rambo I thought was a pretty good one. Catfish Rambo is pretty fucking good. What else have we got going on right now on our Patreon, Kevin? Oh, so we've got the uh, latest episode of Married with Podcast, and we have an episode of Leave it to Bricker. We also this week encourage you to check out the new edition of These Are Their Stories. Yes. We're covering an episode of SVU, the one with Carol Burnett. It's amazing. She plays an elderly bon vivant who has a, a creepy fuckboy husband yes. played by Matthew Lillard. It's amazing. A.K.A. A Shaggy. What? Yes. <laughs> yeah. She also owns a uh, Hawaiian-themed strip club. Yes, that she thinks is a ballet studio. Yeah. and uh, It's wild episode. It's one of the most wild SVU episodes ever. Her husband gets defenestrated. Yes, he does. And we have an amazing guest for that episode. Who's the guest? Our guest is Jake Anthony from the Reality Gaze podcast. I will say, we got an email today about this week's These Are Their Stories podcast, where the subject line was something like, this week's These Are Their Stories was fucking rad. And then the, the body of the email was like, that's it. That's the email. <laughs> <laughs> it is so good. So check out this week's These Are Their Stories. It's really, really good. I encourage you right now to sign up if you haven't already for the Crime Writers On weekly newsletter. Just go to uh, crimewriterson.com and stick in your email address. We promise we will not sell them to aluminum siding salesmen or foreign princes. Or like car... Um, uh, warranty, warranty people. <laughs> We've been trying to. I got a call like that today. I picked it up and it was the automated voice and it says, Hello, is Flynn there? And I'm like, <laughs> Flynn? Come on, man. Flynn, comma, yeah. Kevin. Uh, but in the newsletter, we always have new merch and I got to say, The leggings are doing really well. I, I cannot believe anybody bought these leggings. That they're buying leggings. But you guys love the leggings. The crime writers have leggings are great. You gotta keep Bless you gotta you. keep those forever. Yeah. The- well now there's leggings with me on on you can have me like all over your private parts. Yeah. 
Who wouldn't want Laura Bricker on their cooter? <laughs> so what is that? This week's leggings? It's the Laura Rowe leggings. Yeah, the Laura Rowe leggings uh, are actually st- starting to sell. So we'll make more leggings. Yeah, but the crime writers on leggings are the classics. are always going to be available, right? Oh, yeah. They're always available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know what I would like for more merch for the holidays? Yeah. I would love if we had some crime writers on aprons because we're all going to be cooking for the next two months. Oh, they don't. Lots they, of yeah. people are going to be doing some crime writers on cooking. How about some Toby Christmas ball leggings? <laughs> Toby Christmas ball. Okay. Oh, that's Overruled. They're so salty in my mouth. Oh, Rebecca. Good Lord. Oh my God! <laughs> All right, Kevin. Before this we wrap up, this is a family show. Before we wrap up the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Misty Hickman and Stacy Cash. Bless you. Bless you, and thank you all for supporting us on Patreon. If you want to support the show, if you don't and get all of the four podcasts we make back there and, you know, join our family, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. But the newsletter is free and you should get that anyway. And thus ends the business section. Should I fade that music down now, Kevin? Do that. Moving on. When you're little, like you grow up in like your perfect little bubble you grow up around all these like white people and like it's just who you think you are and then like you realize you're different after taking dna tests three teens learned their cousins all adopted from china after being abandoned as newborns chloe sadie and lily live in different parts of the u.s raised by white families of different religious denominations And although they're curious about their origins, each struggles with whether or not to learn about their birth parents. And she said, like, some very hurtful things about, like, about, like, like, my birth parents maybe not wanting me, and that's why they gave me up. The trio enlists the help of Leo Howe, a Beijing researcher who scours the country to match American adoptees with the families who reluctantly gave them up, most likely the result of the nation's one-child policy. The hope is Leo Howe can fill in the blanks of the cousin's stories in time for a trip to China. A lot of my relatives, they just gave up their children, their girls. And my parents, they've almost gave up me because they don't want to pay the penalty. The Netflix documentary Found is a look at three girls asking, where did I come from? And a woman tasked with answering that question in a nation of one billion people. It's a tear-jerking reflection on family, identity, and hope. We are going to be talking about plot points for Found. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Also, one disclaimer that we keep forgetting to do on this podcast. I did interview the director and producer of Found for the Netflix podcast. You can't make this up. Now, I do assess the quality of everything we do on this podcast for that interview. It has not influenced my review today, and we would never review something on this show that I cannot give an honest review for. Right, Kevin? Right. That is true. So, Kevin, this is not a true crime show, 
documentary. No, we talk about pop culture and other things. Why are we doing it? Because it's a detective story. Is it not also well, a detective it, story? Yes. I was thinking that when he got to this part, I said, wow, this is just like a detective story. Because Leo Howe, who is the researcher, basically starts pounding the sidewalks to try to find the birth parents here in a country of a billion people, right? So that's very, very difficult. And of course, we're pulling for her because we've already, at that point, met the three girls, uh, Lily, Cleo, and Sadie, and their families. And, you know, we've come to understand emotionally where they are. And, you know, I think we all understand that in a story about adopted children looking for their parents, that's what the story's got to be about. It's got to be about, about, you know, going out and finding and making that attempt. Yeah. Laura, can we talk about your first note that you sent me on this <laughs> documentary? Would you like to read it? And then we can talk about it. Yeah, I'll read it. And it says, if Toby Ball didn't shed a tear watching this, he's dead to me. Thoughts, Toby Ball? About that? Did you shed a tear and are you dead did to you, Laura Bricker? Did you shed a tear watching this, Toby? Because I was like, this is going to even melt Toby's heart. I don't think I did. I wasn't really <gasps> focused too much on on my like. You're dead to me. Body secretions while I was watching, but uh, Toby Ball's body secretions. I mean, it's 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 a uh, you know, it's definitely kind of a tearjerker. Jesus Christ! I cried the whole fucking time. I cried sure so many times. The ending really got to me when the girl that's the I'm just gonna call her the genealogy detective, um, Leo Howe. Yeah, when she was sitting at her desk at the end, and I was just like. Oh, and we'll probably talk about that. But that is this when she found the other, the found the mother for somebody else. Yeah. One of the women we have tested came back as your birth mother. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I understand you may have the thousands of questions in your mind. Did she give birth to all daughters? Like it's all girls? Laura, she's you. She is you. I kept thinking this the entire time. Like, this is a job you would do. It's oh, like, yeah. I mean, I get because it's basically like the curiosity of putting together stories, but then also the humanity. Because the thing about Leo Howe that's amazing to me is that she works for this. Basically, it's a travel tourism company, right? Where like people, it's a business where adoptees come, they do the DNA tests, and then her job is to find the people, and then it's like a tourism thing where she brings them to the orphanages in this bus. So it's this weird job where, like, she has this connection thing, but then she does this due diligence for the Chinese families who are not paying her, right? Yeah. And she's going to these villages to deliver this news in person. Like, no one's paying her for that. And I'm like, that is the Lara Bricker side of the story. Oh, well, she was I really identified with her. I just felt like she was just portrayed so beautifully throughout this entire series. Like you really felt all parts of her character coming through from like the empathy, the compassion, the dedication, the curiosity, but just the humanity. And that scene when she went out and was talking to the farmers. Now, I thought it was going to be a match because when you saw their biological daughter and then you see the girl in the U.S. And and I was like, oh, my gosh. That was Lily's. Oh, Lily. Yeah, 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 Lily. I think that story was important to see because it really gave you a window into how, as she's doing her job, she has to learn to keep going, even when something like that, that seems like, like you look at it on face value and think this is definitely a match. Like they look identical and it's not. It was so heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Toby, did you cry at that part? (laughs) Well, you know, what was weird about that, I thought, was that she does a lot of, like, getting people's hopes up and then dashing them, (laughs) 
you know, I mean, not on purpose, I think, but she does a lot like, oh, I really saw her. I think it's right, really be it. Or, you know, I mean, she kind of like gives people this hope and it's still like, it, I mean, it's just a wild. She's honest though. She doesn't like, yeah. it's not. She did say, she did tell everybody it was a very small chance. Yeah. But, I mean, but that, that just... Lily thing, when you saw, because the filmmakers oh, yeah. did include the, the thing with the jaw girl, surgery. Like that was that yeah. was significant, and like Kevin, that was significant, yeah, right? Actually, do you want to share your story? But I had that same jaw surgery when Kevin I was had that the age. Same, the same condition, really? Yeah, 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 I looked completely different, and now really? I now I'm super handsome, just like <laughs> Lily is super beautiful. She was beautiful, Kevin, as before the jaw surgery, as you were super handsome before. Well, the I jaw thank surgery. you so much for bailing me out of that. <laughs> <laughs> I will say the thing that was interesting to me was. The stories of the girls in America before the detective story and seeing their lives here. Now, Toby, you just sent me a note and I want to answer the question so we don't have to like dwell on it. How the filmmakers got the story. They got in super early. Uh, So the director, Amanda Lippitz, Chloe, one of the girls, by the way, Amanda Lippitz is a really well-known director who's made other award-winning documentaries. Chloe, one of the girls, is her niece. And so her parents sent her the, she saw the footage of her niece her adopted niece from China being bat mitzvahed in Israel. And she yep. thought, oh, there might be a film here about an adoptee. Uh, well, she shot that film. Yeah. But but she was thinking, like, there might be a film here just about sort of the identity stuff, right? Yeah. And then it turned into this. So she was in early. She didn't know it was going to be this when it, when oh, it that's started. that's interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, huh. I mean, I, f- I feel like some of these great documentaries, like, start with an idea that's good. And then just, like, the reality of what happens once it gets started, kind of. I, I mean, I think Hoop Dreams was one of the ones that was really sort of early on like that. It was where you followed the story of these two kids and what happened to them was so kind of profound in the way that their their lives were shaped by it, for better and for worse, that couldn't have been foreseen at all when you started. And I kind of felt the same way about this, is you could you could have like a basic idea of, you know, we'll we'll do it, we'll, you know, see if we can match them up genealogically, we'll take them to China, like have them sort of be in the place where they were born and, and kind of get their reaction. But then the reality of it, which is these sort of Situations where people are, are sort of almost expecting that they're going to find out these things, the ones who do want to, the one who doesn't, you know, obviously doesn't have that situation. But then, you know, the visits to the orphanages where they were kept is very moving. And I think it was moving, I, I think, to Americans, too, because I think what you get here is these stories about these horrible orphanages where you have all these kids and they're understaffed and they have to tie the kids down at night and all this stuff. And, and you're kind of given this idea that it's like this state-sponsored hellhole. And then when you see the reality of it, which is these women who are really trying to do the best they can in almost impossible circumstances and trying to nurture these kids as much as possible. And you can see it, obviously, you know, they're moved by when they see these kids who they, they couldn't have had for that long. They remember and, them. They've had and, hundreds of And were of taken babies. away from them and come back and they're these, you know beautiful, smart young women and, and sort of the emotional impact it has on these on these women who worked at these orphanages. She was like kind of the closest thing I had to a mother at the time. It was like, it's really nice to know that she loved me and like, like was able to take care of me out of like hundreds of babies in the orphanage. So. 
there's a lot of like pretty moving stuff. I mean, I was I was being kind of flip when when Laura made that comment, but you know, you can kind of call it a tearjerker or whatever. But I I sort of feel like it's more earned than that. Like you don't feel really emotionally manipulated yeah, in this. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're sort of following this very sort of natural story and these girls' curiosity, and then what they find, and then the sort of you know realization they have at the end, uh, the sort of catharsis. It, it, you know, it's it's intense. Kevin, one scene I want to point out is about the American upbringing of these kids. Mm -hmm. There's an incredible scene. First of all, all these kids grew up in like relatively religious homes, which is interesting. But there's an incredible scene where one of the girls is on a cross-country meet bus. She's on this bus going with, yeah. And there's a girl from another school who's also adopted from China. And they're talking about the circumstances of their abandonment. How were you found? Like, would someone deliver you? Oh, I was found on um, a busy street. I have a picture, but I really don't. Someone took a picture? Yeah, they're there, exploring Guangzhou. I was found on a bench. On a bench? In, in like, a busy marketplace. Oh, my God. The casualness with which they talk about, like, I was abandoned here and I was abandoned there. And the white girls across the aisle just looking at them like, the fuck? (laughs) I mean, it really speaks to... I mean, the movie could have been about that, right? The movie could have been about being born in China, adopted by American parents into religious families, and, like, it could have been about that, like, weird... Raised Jewish. Yeah. With your friend, the girl from China, who's now Greek Orthodox. It could have been about that, right? Right. That was a whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I found that, and also the divorced parent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just found that to be fascinating. One of the parents, I think it was Chloe's father said that it's like a, a grieving as they talk about it and they think about, do I want to know? Do I not want to know? I imagine that almost all adopted children go through the idea asking the question of who am I and where am I from and why did my mother slash parents, why did they give me up? And I think with Chinese adoptees like these three girls, there's an added layer because, for one thing, you know there's this government policy discourages the parents from having a second child. And if, if they do so, there are penalties and whatnot. And you know the likelihood that they can go to China and follow some sort of like regular bureaucratic paper trail is very, very slim. You know, it seems like, unfortunately, for a lot of adoptees, domestically, too, it's sort of, if you want to find your birth parent, a lot of it's going to depend on whether somebody kept a good record, right? So these are not uncommon feelings. And what is always sort of unusual to Westerners about what the Chinese orphanage is, is that we hear the babies are left in ways that would be considered abandonment, definitely in the West. But through the lens of talking with the people in China, the parents who had done that with their children, we find that they're not left on a street because they are being dumped, because they're unwanted necessarily. In many of these cases, they say they're put here because there's a lot of traffic and somebody will see her here or will leave them at, at a some place where somebody will take they her. They hid the pregnancy so they could have the baby. So they have the baby. Yeah, yeah. And this is a broad brush, of course. Uh, There are a lot of cultural things there. Obviously, the cultural preference towards boys plays a lot in the reason why, at this time, 98% of the adopted children were girls. And they don't really dig too deeply into that. I mean, I guess it's self-evident that it's the girls. But to see this from the view for the first time of some of these parents who gave up their children and the manner in which they give it up in the West would be just 
you know, by leaving a baby someplace, we just would say, you just treated that child like garbage. That culturally, they don't see it that way. There's a little more thought to it than that. And there's a lot more regret. A more heartbreak. A lot more heartbreak than you would think. They're not really discarding, to those that we talk to, they're not really discarding the child. A lot of them really want to have the child. And they're trying to. And they're hoping for forgiveness. Hoping for forgiveness, hoping to give them a life that they can't give. It's adoption is really complicated and I know it's, it's fraught with a lot of emotions and I know we have listeners who are adopted or have adopted children and none of that is easy, but it's this other layer of complexity and we don't usually get to see the side of it from China, yeah. from the Chinese parents. We just hear about the orphanages. And so my takeaway from it, all of that is that if someday Lily and Sadie or Chloe are able to find their parents. I'm hopeful that it would be a happy reunion, right? It isn't like, oh, well, I I only wanted a boy, so I dumped you, or whatever. Wouldn't it be something like that? I'd like to think- I don't think it would be. I'd like to think that after meeting some of these other parents, the ones who cried when Mr. Chen found out it wasn't, Lily wasn't his daughter, if and when they find their real parents, that they will have that happy reunion. Yep. I don't know. I will say the reason the scene on the bus moved me so much. Yeah. Is it remind it also made me think about just what it's like to be a girl in America. Mm-hmm. Adopted or not, uh Chinese American or not, as girls and as women, we're just taught to just like push everything down and just be cool with everything. Like just what it's like you're expected to be like Laura, you know what I'm talking about. Like Oh yeah. Like, oh, oh I yeah. was dumped on the side of the road. What about you? Well, I was left by a mailbox. What about you? like we're just expected to just fucking pretend like everything's cool all the time and that is so when you see like a 15 16 17 year old doing that and they're talking about a traumatic event that was another moment where i was just like weeping because it's like they are it was so clinical about it because of the way that they've talked about it and processed but didn't it remind you of your own teenage self talking about very Mm -hmm. traumatic things and just trying to be cool because that's what you were supposed to be oh Uh, yeah people are always amazed they're like oh you always seem so happy when you talked about them like well because you frame it in a way that's the way that you can do it at the time you have to and that that is you have to and then it's like years later that you realize wow that was really not um nothing that was actually a big deal but that's how you're able to actually continue to cope at the time and that's how you're conditioned to me that's the magic of this film is that it gets to the heart of girlhood in a way that like even goes beyond the story i have a question for you laura though because yes 23 and me is at the heart of so many interesting it's at the heart of bearbrook it's the heart of the golden state killers apprehension and it's the heart of this I mean, there's a lot of downsides to these DNA databases. I mean, I've heard about lots of families being broken apart because, hey, turns out you're not actually my dad and turns Mm -hmm. out whatever. Or, you know, people don't want to be contacted because guess what? Like, I may have donated sperm when I was in college and I actually don't want to have 800 people Mm -hmm. be my kids or whatever. There's a lot of downsides, too. But don't you feel like this is opening up also there's a lot of stories that we're going to be being told like here, right? Because of this. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking behind me because I've had my Ancestry DNA kit for like two years because I've been afraid to do it. So it's probably not even like valid anymore because I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, what am I going to find out? Like, I-, I don't know. But one of the things I was thinking about as I was watching this is like, it would be interesting to take sort of this like bird's eye view of how many matches in the U.S. have been made with 
you know, children that were adopted who have been able to find their birth parents or their relatives thanks to these type of DNA databases and these testing services. You know, I can think of somebody in my life that didn't know they had a daughter and didn't find out until the daughter was 50 years old and they had been living like 15 miles apart their entire lives. Wow. So I think there's so many more of those stories, but I guess I'm curious to know, like in the bigger context, like how many have been able to find that connection? Because in the past, it was like you would have to have like some sort of a release signed from the adoption agency. And if the person said, like, don't find me, you're just sort of SOL, basically, right? But now it's like involuntary. Um, like, Yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm curious. I, I definitely am curious. In case you didn't know that the three of them found each other through, I guess it was 23 me. But they weren't the only relatives that they found. There were dozens of other matches, but there are people of all different ages. They were interested in finding girls their own age, but there are other distant cousins, uh, you know, in their 20s and 30s and 40s and whatnot. Just like anybody else would do when you do your 23andMe, you'd come up with a whole bunch of different hits. But it isn't like this was the only other person in the world that they found was this distant cousin, but... Anyway, Toby, one other thing, it's very hard as a parent to not think about the experience of the parents here, right? So you adopted these children, they're your children, and then you are with them on this journey where they're like discovering who they are. And I thought all the parents in this documentary were wonderful. I mean, they obviously were supportive. They went to China. You didn't see anybody like doing the whole thing where they're like, oh, but if you find your parents, it means you don't love me. Like no one was doing that kind of thing. But like... That's a hard, I mean, it's like you're basically entering a whole journey that like you didn't necessarily think about 17 years ago, right? Yeah. But I, you know, I mean, that's the thing with kids, right? Mm. They make choices and you, you roll with it, <laughs> you that's know, as a parent, you know. Adopted or not, that is the deal. They're in charge about certain things and, you know, you can fight it or not. Um, but yeah, I thought all the parents seemed like really good parents and caring and, I mean, I mean, for me, it, it felt like like it would be hard to be in that situation and just worry that what your daughter's going to find out is going to be, you know, disappointing or hurtful or something. That you could go through this big sort of emotional thing, and it could turn out to be negative. Like you could find out, it's like, well, you're a girl, and so you know, we didn't want you or something. But I mean, I think what sort of makes the movie what it is in some ways is that there's it's very cathartic for them i think is that you know these questions they had about their first days and weeks and months and they find out that they had people who cared for them and that their parents who gave them up based on the examples of people who weren't their parents but of the people they can experience it was a devastating decision in which they had really no choice I mean, that's what kind of gives it the feel-good aspect, is that even though the like exact connection with the parent isn't made, I think the questions that they had about their earliest life in China is answered in a way that was affirming and showed that they were cared about. And Lily turns out was a very bad baby, which is exactly what I'm sure someone would say about me if they came <laughs> back. I, could, I just get thinking I thought about all that. that was, I, I thought that was going to be bullshit. It was wonderful. That they were going to be very, that they're very polite, but they're like, well, you've had hundreds of babies. Oh, they you're remembered just, those girls. Just being, the one where the, she said that, you know, she twisted herself in the blanket and, and the birth, the adopted mom said, yes, she was a baby. She always twisted herself in yep. the blanket like that. Could be coincidental, but it kind oh, of no. like it, they it, it led babies. credence to the idea. Yeah, they you had know. them for 18 months. 
Yeah. They remember those babies. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was wonderful. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out the totally not true crime documentary? <laughs> Toby's shaking his head. He's like, we'll review anything on this show. Uh, the totally not true crime <laughs> documentary found on Netflix. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the definitely detective story found on Netflix. Yeah, um, I'm going thumbs up on this. Um, I have a really good friend who adopted her daughter from China. So I've heard a lot about this type of adoption. And a few years ago, the two of them actually went back and did a similar trip. And they they weren't able to confirm like birth parents, but they did go back to the same orphanage, much like the girls in this documentary did. But it's funny, I walked with her this week and she said she just, for her as somebody that's lived through this, it's going to be too hard for her to watch this. And she doesn't think her daughter would be able to watch it either just because it's so emotional and so something that they've lived. But I think, you know, you have to look at your own circumstances as to whether it's something you want to sit down and watch. I just found it very heartwarming, um, but also really heartbreaking at the same time in terms of just people that are never going to find out where their babies went to. But it was it was well done. It was a nice change of pace. I would say give it a watch. Toby Ball. Yeah, this has got nothing to do with true crime, but it's good. It, it's, it's very moving. The people in it, I think without exception, are all, you know, they all seem like good people. And, and you, you kind of see these sort of shared values of trying to nurture children across the U.S. and China. It's just it's just a nice it's a nice documentary. I don't have a whole lot else to say about it. I just you know it's good. Good, we're still friends, Toby. But again, it's not it's not true crime. It's not, and it's okay, Toby. We've also reviewed other things in the show that are not true crime. So give me a pass. No, I'm just I'm just making sure that people understand that our visitors aren't waiting for the other shoe to drop. I totally understand, <laughs> Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm thumbs up. Uh, this was a really emotional documentary. You know, Laura knows people. We all know people that have gone through this one way or the other. I didn't cry as much as I did during the Mr. Rogers documentary. (laughs) But I will say, for audio production purposes, I did have to go revisit the end and pull a couple of clips and then it started started (laughs) happening all over again. So um, I like what Laura said, heartwarming and heartbreaking. Thumbs up. Uh, So Kevin watched this before I did. And he said, oh, I cried at the end. So I was ready to watch it and cry at the end. And I cried the whole fucking time. And it was a good kind of crying, like not the kind where you're like, oh, I'm so pissed that I'm crying right now. But it was like the good, cathartic, wonderful crying I think found is so good. And I really, really want everyone to watch it, especially if you're a woman, especially if uh, you're a girl, especially if you know a woman (laughs) or know a girl. And honestly, if you're anyone, you should watch this documentary. I just think it's wonderful. It's beautifully crafted. And especially when you think about how it was made, like imagine you have somebody in your family and you think, oh, this could be an interesting story about being adopted from China and having this be your identity. And then realizing this whole other thing could happen. And then going to China and making this whole different movie. I mean, it really is extraordinary how this story unfolded and where it goes. And yes, it's a detective story. But despite what Toby says, it's not crime, but it's detective adjacent. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Found, and that's the reason why I maybe made us do it on this podcast. So please watch it. Two huge thumbs up for me for Found. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. week. It was a 
really bad day for one man in Brazil. A news report said that a man was fishing with his buddies at a lake in Brasilandia de Minas. He was suddenly attacked by a swarm of bees. In order to escape the stingers, he jumped into the lake, but he didn't know how to swim, so he sank below the surface. That's when he was attacked by a school of piranha. Wow. Officials later retrieved his teeth-torn body near the shore. They aren't sure whether the piranha attacked before or after he died. There are over 30 species of carnivorous fish native to the Amazon River Basin. Officials believe the piranha were placed in a small lake by someone dumping an aquarium. It should be noted that this story, which ran in Newsweek, was not independently confirmed. Great. But apparently checking on whether far-fetched tales are bullshit or not is something we don't do anymore. Nope. So panels... Let's get a 10-part <laughs> podcast going. Ooh. Burn, Kevin. Burn. Things went from bad to worse for this fellow. Tell us another tale about a series of unfortunate events. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Oh, my God, you guys. I was going to make one up, and then I remembered that something actually happened around here that fits this bill. So a couple of years ago, there was this guy that got really drunk and decided to go like set off fireworks. And he like shot his fingers off with the fireworks. He was all alone. He was just like home alone shooting out fireworks. But then he got like blinded when it, it shot off. And so he, he couldn't see and he had no fingers. And he like went in his house and he dragged his fingers like down the wall. So it looked like a crime scene. And then he tried to call 911, but he didn't have any fingers. So then he just like passed out and like, the next day, they're like, he didn't show up for work. They're like, where is he? And they like showed up at his house and there was like blood everywhere. And there he was, no fingers. He shouldn't be laughing, but it's just... Wait, I how mean... did he carry his fingers to make those marks? <laughs> they were gone, Toby. They were gone. They were obliterated. I mean, can anybody go after that? Yeah, I saw the picture. I saw the picture. It was true. Some folks that were there showed me the picture and I went, oh my God, it looks like a crime scene. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. So you can find me at Toby Ball and <laughs> H. Kevin Flynn, do you have a series of unfortunate events? Well, there was the guy that drove his car into the razor blade factory, <laughs> oh. and, then, and then he drove it into the lemon juice factory. Yeah, uh, I have one. I have one. There was a uh, a newspaper editor who was murdered after putting on a red coat and pushed off of a building, and then there was a woman who was moderating a duck race. And fell off her boat, uh, and someone had to take a picture with a cell phone instead of a real camera. Ooh. Laura Bricker, does that sound like a familiar series of unfortunate events to you? It does sound familiar. It sounds like a scene in Dead on Deadline, Rebecca. A little bit of a scene on Dead on Deadline. <laughs> All right. We should probably end it on that note. Before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do. On our cat of the week, my goodness, people are really, like, upping their game lately. Yeah. So this comes to us from longtime listener Tanya. Hold I thought on. you were going to say Carol Baskin. I really want like a Carol Baskin cat of the week. Carol, we're going to have a Carol Baskin. Send cat us of the a week. cat, Carol. You have like a hundred and fifty big cats. Send us one. So this week's cat of the week. Um, people are really upping it this week. So Tanya Hoyer, longtime listener and uh, like from the OG Crime Writers on, sent me a nomination. She has been listening since the first season of Serial. I love listening to your reviews, and I do not mind spoilers, so I listen even when I haven't listened to one. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. do. Yeah, you do. That's what you do. She would like to nominate her daughter's cat, Graham, as Cat of the Week. Her daughter and son-in-law are van lifers traveling from Alaska to Argentina. They are currently in Colombia and took Graham on his first overnight hike. The hike was 10 miles each way, 
and Graham walked a good bit of it. He does not like to get his paws wet, though. Stop. And he goes in the Stop. cat. They took a cat for a 20-mile hike? Yes. He went in the cat backpack cool. when he wants a rest. But wait, it gets better. Graham has been to 10 countries, 46 U.S. states, has his own apartment in the van so he can hide from his dog sister, Sambrita. They had a dog, Attaching- too. Oh, yes, Sombrita. And and um, she sent links to the daughter's vlogs featuring Graham, which, by the way, are both like 20 minutes long. They're like legit, like this cat. Has so Graham seen isn't things. Casey? Graham is real? Graham is real. I have verified that Graham is real. I have seen Graham. I've seen Graham in Colombia. I've seen Graham in the van. Hi, hmm. Caramba. Is Graham's daughter yes. like, Papa, Papa, is there someone don't, else who can do that 20 go. mile hike yeah. instead of you? <laughs> <laughs> Don't they have to, like, quarantine pets when you cross borders? Stop it, Toby. Stop trying to ruin the fantasy, Toby. Listen, Graham has a place to hide when the authorities come. And he keeps quiet. He's like, keep quiet. Don't say nothing. Okay, good job, Graham. Graham's nickname is Bearback, by the way. All right, Lara Bricker. (laughs) If folks want to send you their animals, it can be any kind of animal living any kind of lifestyle to be pet of the week or cat of the week. How can they find you besides sending an email to crimewriterson at gmail.com? How can they find you if they want to tweet you, for instance, on Twitter? They can find me at Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball, would you like to reiterate your Twitter handle for the folks at home? At Toby Ball NH. Kevin Flynn, how can folks find you? I'm at twitter.com slash <laughs> Kevin P. Flynn. You're not letting that go, are you? Nope. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show at Crime Writers On. And please join our incredible community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Just go to facebook.com and look for Crime Writers On podcast and then hit join the group. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On after show right now. Plus, you'll get three other podcasts. Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the incredibly astute Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we plan our testosterone-fueled rescue missions in between going to weddings and making goat cheese. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you Later. later. Can I point out one thing before we start? Yeah. Toby's note. His first note. We'll fucking review anything. Yeah, what fuck the you, fuck, Toby? Toby? It's a detective story. <laughs> There's nothing less true crime than that found. Whatever. Can we review we the Super Bowl? Tr- we dig into true crime, <laughs> pop culture, other podcasts. Yeah.